Chapter 7 of What the White Race May Learn from the Indian by George Wharton James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Indian in the Rain and the Dirt. How these things we may learn from the Indian grow upon us as we study the noble red man in his own haunts. Again and again I have noticed that he doesn't know enough to go in when it rains. The white man who first coined that expression deemed it an evidence of smartness and reared his head more proudly than his fellows because he was the author of so bright an idea. Yet when you come to consider it, what a foolish proposition it is. Go in when it rains? Why should you go in? Do the birds go in? I have just been watching them from my study window, larks, linnets, song sparrows, and mockingbirds. Not one of them seems to care a particle about the rain, and their songs are as sweet and as cheery and as full of melody as they are in the days of brightest sunshine. How well I recall seeing a mockingbird on a stand on my lawn one day when the rain was pouring down fiercely. He stood with bill up and tail down so that he had a very gothic roof-like appearance, his mouth wide open, and as the rain poured from the end of his tail, he sent out a flood of melody more rich and sweet than any bird song I ever heard. And the horses! How they enjoy the rain! I have seen them loose in a stable having double doors, the upper of which was open, and when it rained, they would thrust their noses out into the rain and let the drippings of the eaves fall upon them with evident pleasure and longing that they might get out into it all over. Nothing alive in nature save civilized man dreads the rain. The Indian fairly revels in it. I was once at the Avasupai village for a couple of weeks, the guest of my friend Waluthama. His little girl, seven years old, was a perfect little witch. She was quick, nervy, lively, and healthy. When it rained and her clothes got wet, I tried to prevail upon her to come into shelter. But no, she wanted to be out in the rain, and off she sprang through the door, playing with the pools as they collected, and running with others of her playmates to where the extemporized waterfalls dashed themselves into semi-spray as they fell from the heights above upon the shelving rocks. Here they stood in the water and rain like dusky fairies, laughing and shouting, romping and sporting in perfect glee. The older women, too, mind it but little unless it is very cold or the wind is blowing. They no more mind being wet than they do that the wind should blow or the sun shine, and as for any ill effect that either children or grown-ups suffer from the wet, I have yet to see it. Why? The reasons are clear. In the first place, they have no fear of the rain. It is not constantly instilled into their minds from childhood that they mustn't get wet or they'll take cold. And girls are not taught to expect functional disarrangement if their feet get wet. 
this has something to do with it, for the effect of the mind upon the body is far more potent than we yet know. In the second place, they move about with natural activity in the rain as at other times. This keeps the blood circulating and prevents any lowering of the temperature of the body. In the third place, their general out-of-door life gives them such a robustness that if there is any tax upon the system it is fully ready to meet it. But, I am asked, would you advocate white people, especially girls and women, getting wet? Think of their skirts bedraggled in the rain, and how these wet skirts cling to the ankles and make their wearers uncomfortable. I have thought a great deal about this, and am not prepared to say that with our present costume I would advocate women's going out much in the rain, but I do say that once in a while they can put on short skirts and stout shoes and such old clothes as cannot be injured by getting wet, and then resolutely and boldly sally forth into the rain, and the harder it comes down the better if it be warm weather. Then let them learn to enjoy the pattering of the rain upon cheeks and ears. Let them hold out their hands and feel the soft and gentle caress of the high-born noble rain. Let them watch the drops as they spatter on the leaves and trickle down the stems, gathering volume and speed as they reach the bowl and fall to the ground, there to give life and nourishment to the whole plant. Everything in nature loves to be out in the rain. How fresh and bright the trees look after a shower! How the rocks are cleansed and made bright and shining! How their color comes vividly out in the rain! And upon human beings the effect is the same, provided they value health and vigor more than they mind a little discomfort in the bedragglement of their clothes. Years ago I learned this lesson. I was riding from the line of the railway over the painted desert with several Havusapai Indians. It was the rainy season. Showers fell half a dozen times a day. At first I wished I had an umbrella. I got wet through, and so did the Indians. I thought I ought to feel wretched and miserable but somehow the Indians were as bright and cheerful as ever. So I plucked up heart and courage, and in half an hour my clothes were dry again. Four or five times that day, and an equal number the next day, I got wet through and dry again. Riding horseback kept me warm, and the quick and healthful circulation of the blood, the act of deep breathing caused by the exercise, the absence of fear in the soul, all combined to make the wetting a benefit instead of an injury. My friend W. W. Bass of the Grand Canyon of Arizona, with whom I have made many trips in that wonderland region, tells with great gusto a true story of my riding over the desert on one occasion, clothed in one of the old-fashioned linen dusters that reached below my knees. It was warm weather, and dusty on the railway, hence the duster, I suppose. But when we got fairly out on the desert it began to rain, and how it did pour! 
it came down so rapidly that by and by my pockets were full of water, and Bass says that when he overtook me I was jogging along, singing at the top of my voice, just as the mockingbird did, the water splashing out of my pockets as I bounced up and down in the saddle. The linen duster clung to the sides and back of the horse and wrapped itself around my legs, so that the picture was comical in the extreme. But I was happy and refused to feel any discomfort, and so got joy out of the experience, as well as health and vigor. For let it be remembered that when I came from England twenty-five years ago, I came as an invalid, broken down in health completely, so much so that I was even forbidden to read a book for a whole year. Now few men are as healthy as I. Years of association with the Indian, learning simplicity and naturalness of him, have aided materially in making the change. I have learned the value of putting the primary things first. I used to be so nice and finicky that the idea of having my clothes wet would give me a small panic. They would get out of shape and look badly and have to be pressed before I could wear them again. But when I came to the conclusion that I was worth more than clothes, that my health was of more importance than a crease in my trousers, I found I was taking hold of a principle which, while it might at times seem to be rough on my clothing, would have a decidedly beneficial influence on myself. And this leads to another important lesson we may learn from the Indian. He is not as nice sometimes as I wish he were, but we are far too nice, often, for health and comfort. Many a woman ruins her health by wrecking her nerves, drives her husband distracted, worries and annoys her children by being too nice in her house. I have found, in New England and elsewhere, I even in Old England, women who valued a clean house more than they valued their own lives, the happiness of their children, and the comfort of their husbands. Indeed, in one case, I well remember a woman drove her husband into temporary insanity, and finally into ignominious flight away from her, by her eternal washing of floors, shaking of carpets, polishing of furniture, and dusting down. Every time the poor fellow went in from the workshop, he must change his clothes. If he came in from the outside, he must take off his shoes before he entered the door. If he put his warm hand down on the polished table, he was rebuked, for his wife at once got up, fetched her chamois leather, and rubbed off the offending marks. Poor wretched woman, and equally poor wretched man. No wonder he went crazy and finally lost his manhood and ran away. I know this is an extreme case, but I vouch for its strict truth, and there are thousands of women, and men too for that matter, who are afflicted in a serious measure with the same disease. In that home where niceness is valued more than health and comfort and work in life, there lurks serious danger. Go to the Indian, 
and while I do not suggest that you lose all niceness by any means, seek to learn some of his philosophy and place primary things first. First, health, happiness, comfort, peace, contentment, love, then these other things. I'm going to make a confession that I am afraid will bring me into sad repute with some of my readers. When my first boy was born, we were naturally very proud of him. As he grew out of his baby clothes, we liked to see him look nice and neat and clean. He must be a pretty little cherub, dressed in white and have the manners of a little Lord Fauntleroy. Then I came to the conclusion that we were valuing niceness more than the healthy development of the child. I remonstrated and urged a change, but to no effect, so I resolved on a coup d'etat. One morning, after the youngster was dressed up in his white bib and tucker, and as uncomfortable and unhappy as any and all healthy children feel at such treatment, I took him by the hand and led him out of doors and out of sight of all watchful eyes, where there was plenty of mud and plenty of water. In half an hour his changed appearance was a marvel. We started a little stream of water, which we then dammed. We made mud pies, and I helped him mix the dough in his apron. We reveled in mud from top to toe. I rolled him in it, so that back was as vividly marked as front. Not a remnant of niceness was left in him. We went home happy and contented, laughing and merry, but bedaubed and beplastered everywhere. We had had such a good time, and it was such fun going out with father. We were going again tomorrow, and the next day, and the next, and so we did. It needed no words, no argument. It did not take long to get two or three suits of brown canvas or blue denim, and the youngster grew up healthy, happy, vigorous, strong, tough, and often dirty, rather than anemic, miserable, dyspeptic, weak and ailing, and nice. There would be far less demand for children's tombstones surmounted with marble angels and inscribed with wretched doggerel, if mothers valued health rather than niceness, vigor before primness, and strength immaculate rather than bibs and aprons. So, I say, let us not be over-nice, and especially let us not train our children to value clean hands and clothes more than the rugged health that comes from contact with the soil in out-of-door employments. I find one can enjoy Homer and Browning, Dante and Shakespeare, all the better because his body is vigorous and strong, his brain clear, and his mind active as the result of rough-and-tumble mountain climbing, desert tramping or riding, and walking on canyon trails. Another result of this frank and fearless acceptance of out-of-door conditions is manifested in a readiness to meet difficulties that over-niceness is disinclined to touch. Let me illustrate. Two or three months ago I made a journey with two Yuma Indians and four white men 
down the overflow of the Colorado River to the Salton Sea. We were warned beforehand that it would be an awfully hard trip. We were told that it was hell boiled down to try to go through certain places. The river for ten or twelve miles left its bed and ran wild over a vast tract of land covered with the mesquite forest. Mesquite is a fairly dense tree growth covered with strong and piercing thorns. When we came to this place, we had to cut our way through the thorny thicket, and our faces, hands, and bodies all suffered with fierce scratchings and thorn pricks. Several times we stuck fast, and there was nothing for it but to jump out into the water with axe in hand and cut away the obstructions or lift over the boat. My Indian, Jim, though dignified and serene, as I shall fully explain elsewhere, had the promptness that over-niceness destroys. He was out over the side of the boat as quickly as I was, ready for the hard and disagreeable work. Had I been nicely dressed, and nice about the feeling of water up to my middle, too nice to wade for hours, sinking into quicksands, in order to find the best passage for the boats, we should have been there yet. We cut down three mesquite trees, under water, in order to get our boats over the stumps. We forced our way through tall and dense arrow weeds, one in front and the other behind the boat, lifting and forcing, pulling and pushing. It was not nice work, but it was invigorating, stimulating, and soul-developing. The other day I went photographing on the Salton Sea. When the launch stopped twenty-five feet from the island covered with pelicans, where I wished to make photographs, I shouldered my camera, stepped out into the water, which came up to my thighs, and walked ashore. The engineer wondered, why should he? Had I waited, the pelicans would have flown away. Speed was necessary. Niceness would have prevented my getting what I went for. When I stand on the lecture platform, or in the pulpit, or in the drawing-room, when I meet ladies in the parlor and go with them for an automobile ride, I dress as neatly as I can afford, and endeavor to look nice. But when I go into my garden to work, I put on blue overalls, a flannel shirt, and a pair of heavy shoes, and I try not to be nice. I roll around in the dirt, I feel it with my hands, I revel in it, for thus, I find, do I gain healthful enjoyment for body, mind, and soul. I owe many things to the Indian, but few things I am more grateful for than that he taught me how to value important things more than looking neat and being nice. End of chapter 7